Good morning, everyone. Uh, I think we'll make a start. It is always a shame to interrupt all those great conversations. Um, just before I start, I want to give a, everyone needs a hero every so often, and my hero this morning at 10 to 8 was Matthew Graham, because I sent him a WhatsApp going, help me with my slides. My usual technical support was in Portrush, looking after his mummy, and I was in a little bit of a panic. So a shout out to Matt, is he even in the room? Well, Cheryl, you can tell him he got a big shout out. Uh, everybody needs a hero, and today Matthew Graham is mine. <laughs> okay. Um, good morning. We are still morning. I, when we were at the Tobar conference, I always like to move back and see you all and look at your faces when I'm speaking to you because I don't feel we connect otherwise. Um, and when we were at the Tobar conference, there was a, some teaching on the prophetic and it was truly profound uh, and it was very simple. If you want to pray for someone, you have to love them. And if you want to speak the words of encouragement from the Lord, you have to love them. And what she got us to do was to sit with someone and look into their eyes and not speak a word for three minutes. Now that doesn't sound like a big deal until you do it with someone you don't normally gaze into their eyes. And actually three minutes is a very long time. And I did it with the beautiful and wonderful Lisa Whitten from our community. And it was utterly profound. It was utterly profound what God spoke to me about for her and what God spoke to her for me. And so this morning, I, I want to remind you that when you feel like you have actually been seen and known, it is a profound human experience. It is a profound connection. And that is what this message to Smyrna is all about. I see you. I know you. I knew you then. I know you now. And I know you in the future. And that, Smyrna, you are fully known. So, that is where we're going to start this morning. Revelation, the, the whole book was set up so brilliantly last week by Ryan. And if you weren't here, I would invite you to, to listen to the podcast. And I'm not going to try and rework what he brought. It's not necessary. All I want to say is that it's an apocalyptic prophecy and it's written in the form of a letter. And it was sent through to all the churches around Asia, what we would now know as modern Turkey. And the whole book presents a series of images that gives exactly the same message as the gospel. The gospel story, if you like, from an aerial viewpoint. God conquers all and everything through self-sacrifice. That is the simple and profound message of Revelation. And Eugene Peterson, one of our other heroes here in Redeemer, he tells us that these seven letters to the seven churches are a fair representation and could be written to any seven churches in any age at any time. And what he says when you're teaching out of these letters is that the challenge is to listen to the Holy Spirit and to ask him, what is our unholy spirit? And then when we see that knowledge and soak ourselves in the presence and the faithfulness of God, that allows him to transform us into a deeper and a more faithful people. And as a team who, who do the preaching, we were reflecting on this question, what is the letter that Jesus would send to us at Redeemer? And as I prepared this week, I sensed a strategy of the enemy that may be stopping us living fully known fully known to each other, 
fully known to the Lord and in the freedom as the children of God. And so we will come to that later. That is where I want us to land today because I believe it's very important. I don't know if you've ever had a card or someone's given you a word or a piece of encouragement and it's been really good and it's, it's encouraged you and it's blessed you, but there's been something about it that just doesn't quite fit and you think, do you really know me? Did you actually get me? And I've had some of those over the years and I've always been thankful for the heart of the person who has prayed for me or the heart for, of the person who has prophesied over me. But you know when someone speaks to you and it's just for you and you know that that only could have come from God the Father because there's a personal knowledge that's pertinent to you. And when this letter was written to the people in Smyrna, they would have got that message loud and clear. This letter is deeply personal and compassionate. It is a letter of commendation with absolutely no correction. There was only two of the seven letters that didn't have correction. This one and the one to the church at Philadelphia. It's a letter that says, I see you, I know you, I know what's ahead for you. And there's no sugarcoating. Jesus doesn't tell them it's all gonna be fine. He actually tells them the truth. And that is the mark of an authentic relationship. That is the mark of a loving parent. Not to cause fear, but to bring security because what we need as our deepest need is to feel known. And so I want to read the passage. I want to read it from the New English Translation. I'm gonna read it over you and then I'm going to remind us why the imagery in this letter would have been so powerful to the people of Smyrna and would have emphasized the knowledge that Jesus had of them. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, Revelation chapter two, verse eight, this is a solemn pronouncement of the one who is the first and the last, the one who was dead but came to life. I know the distress you are suffering and your poverty, but you're rich. I also know the slander against you by those who call themselves Jews and really are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of the things you are about to suffer. The devil is about to have some of you thrown into prison so that you will be tested and you will experience suffering for 10 days. Remain faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown that is life itself. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will in no way be harmed by the second death. So how would Smyrnians, I think that's how you say it, have felt known when they heard this letter? There's three images that were so profound and would have spoken deeply to them. The first and the last. This was a bustling, successful city that prided itself on being the forefront of Asia. And they liked to be on top. They liked to be the first. So when Jesus spoke to them about himself being the first and the last, that image would have resonated deeply with them. The second was dead and came to life. This city was destroyed by fire and earthquake. It was dead for several hundred years and then it was rebuilt. So the very city of, of Smyrna had been dead and then was raised to life. 
And the last image that Jesus uses in this, in this prophetic letter is the crown of life. This city was known as a crown due to the steep hill and the architecture above the hill. So when you stood at the port of Smyrna and you looked at the city, the way the city was built on the hill, it looked like a crown. And so the city was actually known as the crown. So for me, when I understood that, and I, I didn't know those things about this particular community, it made me appreciate that when Jesus is speaking to them, he wants them to know that he knows all about you. He knows every detail of your life, and you are going to know that I know. And Redeemer, he has the same message for us this morning. He has the same message for us this morning. I was at the beginning, I'm in the middle, and I will be at the end, and I know you and you are loved and lovable. When we were singing that song, my soul sings that I love you, I heard the Father say, and don't you know that I'm singing that over you? Don't you know that when you sing, my soul loves you? I'm singing it right back at you. And so when we come to the table at the end, I'd love us to sing that refrain again, but sing it knowing that he is singing it over us. He is singing it over every one of you. I want to take us slowly through the passage and then I want to, to speak to what I feel that God's Spirit put in my heart for us as a community. So Jesus says at the end, or sorry, at the beginning, the solemn pronouncement of the one who is the first and the last. Jesus here is speaking of the unchanging nature of God, the one who bookends our lives and knows every detail. In, Re in the first chapter of Revelation, when John was feeling fearful and anxious, the same words were used to reassure him, I am the first and the last. God himself in the book of Isaiah described himself to the people of Israel in the same way when he reminded them not to fear. And so this repetition of the same language from the early Old Testament book would have reminded the Smyrnians that they too are the people of God and that he is with them. The next bit, I know the distress you're suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. So the Greek word for poverty that is used in the text is the poverty that's not about lack, as in I'm not rich. It's about the, the poverty that is, comes from being the position of a slave. You have no possessions, you have no influence, you have no security, you're nothing. You're at the bottom of the pack. And so when Jesus talks to them about, and he names this poverty, he's telling them, I know your position, I know what's happening for you, but I want to remind you that in me you are rich. I want to remind you that in me you have all that you need. There's been some uh, commentators would have suggested that these people who lived almost like slaves in terms of their position and, and their influence, they may have actually chosen that because they didn't want to get into the trade guild's religious ceremonies. And so they were, they were living in a prosperous, rich city that was full of gold, full of silver, and yet they had nothing. And part of that was because of their choice to be a follower of Jesus. The ancient scriptures saw their fulfillment in Jesus the Messiah. And when Jesus speaks of the synagogue of Satan, what he would have been speaking to in the city of Smyrna was that there was a very large and very successful and very thriving synagogue, but they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. 
And so the members of this synagogue would have been persecuting and blaspheming Jesus and calling down curses on all of the Jesus followers, the Jews that did accept him as the Messiah and who gathered in these small faithful communities with Gentiles alike. And so we had the Jews who recognized that Jesus was the Messiah and lived as Jesus followers and they suffered deep and severe persecution. And they would have been persecuted almost by their very own, by fellow Jews who did not accept Jesus as Messiah. And I was thinking about that and thinking about the hurts and the persecution and the slander that sometimes we as a community have suffered and that Christians all around the world have suffered. And often we suffer it from other followers of Jesus, from other faithful people. And if you think in your personal life, sometimes your greatest hurts can happen in a faith community. Because in a faith community, you allow yourself to be a little more vulnerable. And I wanted to remind those of you who've suffered in that, that, that way, that that is nothing new. That Jesus was naming this to the church and to the followers. And he reminds us that this will happen. Persecution will come. That is what you expect. It talks about that in James. But you are to remain faithful. When it said about the slander, perhaps there was a, an idea that some of their practices, so whenever they took bread and wine, they would have been accused of cannibalism. When they met secretly for their own protection, they would have been accused of running a secret society against the state. And these communities of Jesus' followers would constantly have been fearful of being infiltrated and then reported to the Roman world. This is Jesus speaking to them in a truly compassionate way. I know you and I see what's ahead. Do not be afraid of the things you're about to suffer. The devil is about to throw some of you in prison so you may be tested and you will experience suffering for 10 days. So the 10 day reference, it's not a literal 10 days. In fact, history would tell us that the persecution that went on for Smyrna went on for 40 years. So it wasn't a literal thing, but it was a reference back to the first chapter of Daniel, where Daniel and his followers of God wanted to serve King Nebuchadnezzar, but didn't want to eat the meat that was tainted, was blessed by the court of the king. And so they asked for 10 days, can we not eat your meat? And can we show you that God will look after us? And God did. And so when the people of Smyrna heard the 10-day reference, they would have automatically gone back to the last time they heard the 10-day reference, which would have been the story of Daniel. And, and what Jesus is doing there is saying, I am going, there is a limit. There is a limit to what you will suffer. It may take you to death. It may take you to prison, but there will be a limit. I don't know if any of you were raised in, um, I was raised and I remember hearing he creates the back for the burden. Did anybody ever hear that kind of poor theology? Basically, you'll never get tested further than you're able to cope with. Um, and I grew up thinking, okay, so when I get tested, that means that you know, I'm capable of it and all of this. And it's somehow it's dependent on how I do. And it's almost a, a performance-related idea. There's nothing in scripture backs up such theology or such a viewpoint. Testing and persecution is part of the following of Jesus and being a Jesus follower, but it's not linked to your strength. 
or it's not linked to your capability or what you're able to manage. It just is. It just happens. And the beautiful thing about the persecution is that you're never alone, that you will never be on your own. Prison was not a place for reform. It was a place for waiting for death, usually death or sentencing. And when I looked through the story of Smyrna and after it, I found that persecution continued. The last persecution that was kind of wreaked in the area that was Smyrna, which is now Turkey and the city of Izmir, was in 1922. In 1922, Turkish people, Turkish soldiers killed tens of thousands of Christians in this area of the world. And they made 1.5 million people refugees. They killed in those days more than would ever have died under Roman rule. And so this, this letter is speaking to what would happen 2,000 years later. That is the beauty of scripture. The story of God was truly prophetic and spoke to what would happen. And so right up to 1922, that was the last time that people were actually persecuted in Smyrna for their faith. I read about the pastor of Smyrna who was called Polycarp. And he became the, the pastor at the age of 26. And he ministered there all of his life for 60 years. And when he was 85, they came, he was uh, reported to the authorities and they came to take him for sentencing to death. And he said to them, can I have an hour? I want to pray. And he asked his um, family to make them a meal. The soldiers arrived to his house to take him to his death and he said, cook them a meal. Cook them a meal. And he was quoted as saying, the Lord has been faithful to me for 85 years and he has never failed me or let me down. I will not deny him. You don't have to tie me up, just bring on the wood. In those days you were tied to a stake and burnt. And he said, no, you don't need to tie me up. I will not deny him. He got many chances to deny Jesus and to live. And he said, I will not deny him. You don't even need to tie me up. Bring me to the wood and I will be burnt. And the person who in history notated the death, said it was truly remarkable because there was not the smell of flesh burning, there was the smell of gold being refined. There was the smell of gold being refined. A faithful servant of Jesus walked to his death and allowed the flames to take him because he knew the promises and he knew what was ahead for him, the crown of life when he finished the race and the second death that would not impact him. How incredible. And so when it says in the crown of life or another word for the remain faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown that is life itself. And the crown of life or the wreath that was given at the end of a race, it's an image that would have been very known to the city and it was a promise of eternal life. And when it speaks to the second death, the second death is the one that happens. We die in the natural and then the second death, the one who conquers will in no way be harmed by the second death. The second death is the one that is for those who do not follow the way of Jesus. But because of me, you will live forever. This is a letter of remarkable encouragement, of deep security and deep love. You are fully known. You are fully known. 
you are a Jesus follower who, if you live as a Jesus follower, you will live a healed and full and fruitful life. And you will know that you are known and that he knows you and that he knows what is ahead for you and that the crown of life is yours and you won't be harmed by the second death. That is not for you. In the last week, I've been working with a young person who is deeply full of, he is convinced his life has no worth. He is utterly convinced his life has no worth. He sees no value in himself. He, he does not want to live anymore and um, he's very determined not to live. And it's deeply distressing to sit in a room with someone in such abject pain and he has weighed heavily on us as a team this week and we have been trying to instill some hope into him in all our ways and every night I pray a blessing on him and every morning I, I pray a blessing on him and I yeah and between Friday and Saturday night I woke up in the middle of the night and I literally sat up in bed and it was like it just suddenly all made sense and what I felt the father say to me was Shame is the key to that young man's position. He carries shame. And so I started to pray over that and into that. And as I prayed and I wept and thought about him, I said, is that just for him? And I felt the father say, no, no, that's for Sunday. That is for Sunday. And so I continued to pray and I, I wept and I paced around and thought about this very toxic toxic strategy of the enemy shame and I saw pictures of some of you in my dream I'm not going to call you out that's not necessary but I saw some of you in this building and I saw your faces and I saw that you carry shame and I saw that that is why you cannot live as the free and full and confident child of the king that this message is you Redeemer, you are fully known. You are fully known. There's nothing that has happened to you. There's nothing that is part of your life that the Father doesn't know. And he is singing over you. Shame is the, is the silent. Shame, Carl Jung describes it rather beautifully. He was the father of psychoanalysis. And he says, shame is the swampland of the soul. Nothing grows in a swampland. You get stuck in it. It's messy. Nothing really changes, nothing thrives, nothing flourishes, and it draws you in and draws you deeper. I have a fear of swamps because woo, I just think you'd go under. Um, and shame does that to your soul. Shame is a still small voice that tells you, I'm bad. Shame is a still small voice that says, You're not good enough. You don't fit. You're weak. If they only knew you, they wouldn't love you. If they knew what had happened to you, you wouldn't be accepted. If they knew what you'd done or what you felt. And, what, and you become your own worst critic. And I am utterly convinced it is one of the most toxic strategies of the enemy that allows us to stay secret, to stay in shame, and to not be vulnerable and live open, authentic lives as of the children of God. And so... What this letter tells you this morning, if you carry shame or if you feel like shame has ever been part of your life, 
this letter is telling you, I know you, I see you, I'm your bookend. I was the first and I'm the last. I've been in every part of your journey and I will be in every part of your journey and you're precious to me and you are enough. And what breaks shame, what breaks shame is bringing it into the light. What breaks shame is giving it some empathy. What breaks shame is an encounter with Jesus. A humility-fueled faith in God and allowing the work of Jesus to set you free. I want to very briefly just remind you of three characters in the Bible who were trapped in shame and locked in shame until they met the beautiful one. There was a woman at the well and she had five husbands. And Jesus called her out. He didn't sugarcoat it. He told her what he'd done wrong and he set her free. There was a woman who bled for 12 years, a truly physical, shameful thing in that society. And she tried to gently touch the cloak and slip away. And Jesus said, no, who's touched me? Daughter, you're mine. And he set her free. And David, David slept with someone else's wife and she became pregnant. And to cover up his shame, he became a murderer. Couldn't have got any worse. He broke so many rules of the land and the natural order and of the, the, the promises that he'd made. And what happened when he had an encounter with God? He became king and honored. So what I'm saying to you this morning, Redeemer, and what I hope that you're hearing is that his grace covers us all. His grace covers us all. And how we begin to address shame and to walk away from it is we build connections with one another that are safe and healthy and we build connections with Jesus. And so I want to invite us as we come to the table this morning to reflect on that for a moment and think, is that the key to stopping me from living a true, free, and, and a beautiful life as a children of God. So can I ask the band to come? Because as long as we remain in our private places and we remain bound by what has happened to us or what we have done, we will never walk free. And we were called to be free. We were called to be the followers of Jesus that impact this city. And so this morning, I invite you to bravely open your hearts, to bravely open your minds, and to acknowledge if, if shame resonates with you. Allow us to pray for you. Allow us to, to help you encounter the beautiful one who will set you free. So I'd like to, as we sing, I'd like the senior leaders or the ministry team, whoever's available to pray, if you can come up and be available. I've also realized that actually sometimes it's quite hard to walk forward for prayer because that in itself is a brave thing and, and you might not feel able to do that. And if you don't feel able to do that this morning, lock eyes with me and we will make sure that you're prayed for before the end of this gathering so that you don't need to walk forward. Let's stand. Father, as we come to say to you, our souls love you, we are so humbled by the fact that you're singing over us. 
I love you too. I love you more. I loved you. I've known you. I've known everything that's happened to you. And you're mine and you're precious and you're loved. And so, Father, we come and we repent of living private lives that have allowed us to remain in shame. Shame is not part of our identity and shame needs no part in our identity. And so as we come to the table, this table which an open table is an act of spiritual warfare, as we come to this table, we step into our identity as your sons and daughters and we give you our yes again and we say come and have your way in us. Come and have your way in us and through us in this city and in this nation and allow us to take the brave step of saying, yes, I need help. I want to acknowledge the work of the enemy and I want to say enough is enough. So Father, we ask you to come by your gentle, beautiful spirit, move amongst us and allow us not to leave this place the same as, as we came in this morning. For it's all to be for your glory for your beautiful name. Amen. Amen.